Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, where we are now in our fifth in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system, and today we're going to look at vitamin C. You can see on the screen the role of vitamin C in the antioxidant defense system. It constitutes the first step where the burden of supplying reducing power is taken out of the cellular membrane and placed into the aqueous component of the cell. And that quick transfer of the reducing power from vitamin C to vitamin E is protecting the membrane because if vitamin E became oxidized and didn't take the reducing power out of the membrane, vitamin E would have to take that reducing power from somewhere in the membrane. And vitamin E would be propagating the lipid peroxidation chain reaction instead of solving the problem. So the only reason that vitamin E is actually helpful in the membrane is because it can, with the help of vitamin C, take that burden of reducing power out of the membrane as quickly as possible. Vitamin C's ability to act as an antioxidant is, like its participation in all of its other biochemical roles, based on its ability to donate hydrogen ions and electrons. You can see on the screen that there are two oxidation steps that vitamin C can undergo, forming first the ascorbyl radical and then dehydroascorbate, and these are reversible so vitamin C can be recycled. That's also true of vitamin E. It can be oxidized to a radical and then a quinone, but in the case of vitamin E, I glossed over it in the last lesson because it's not as relevant to practical considerations. For vitamin C, if we think about its chemistry in a little bit more detail, we can think of some very practical implications for how to keep it stable in our foods. So if you look on the screen, ascorbic acid has a hydroxyl group in the lower right corner, and that hydrogen on that hydroxyl group can ionize into solution. A hydrogen ion is also called a proton, and so in ascorbic acid is in the protonated state. When that proton has left, it's in the deprotonated state, which is the ascorbate ion. That oxygen is now negatively charged because a positive charge has left it. It is not a radical. All of its electrons are properly paired, but it has one extra electron relative to its own number of protons. That gives it a negative charge, and whenever something's fully charged, we call it an ion. The ascorbate ion then becomes vulnerable to losing that extra electron and becoming the ascorbyl radical, which, symbolized by the dot, is a free radical. You can think of this original hydrogen ion as a cap that protects that extra electron from oxidation. So ascorbic acid cannot undergo oxidation under any circumstances. The ascorbate ion can undergo oxidation. And the ascorbyl radical could be reduced back to the ascorbate ion, but it's very likely, if that doesn't happen immediately, to undergo another oxidation to dehydroascorbate. And that's simply the loss of another electron, and you can see the double bonds move around to balance everything out. And dehydroascorbate is neither a free radical nor is it charged, so it's much more stable than the ascorbyl radical. Now, why does this matter for our food? 
Well, we can manipulate the ratio of ascorbic acid to ascorbate ion in a solution by controlling the acidity. So if we add acids to a solution that has vitamin C in it, then we'll have more hydrogen ions, and these greater number of hydrogen ions will add themselves to this O-, and that will shift ascorbate ion towards ascorbic acid. Since ascorbic acid cannot undergo oxidation, adding acid to a food to preserve the ascorbic acid state over the ascorbate ion state is going to prevent the formation of the ascorbyl radical and prevent the formation of dehydroascorbate in that food. Now you could say, well, why do I care if there's dehydroascorbate in my food? If that happens in my cells and I just reduce it back to ascorbic acid, can I do the same thing with the food? Probably you can. The problem is, as shown on the screen, dehydroascorbic acid is vulnerable to hydrolytic ring rupture, which means that hydro, water, lytic, breaks apart the ring. So if you look at ascorbic acid, dehydroascorbate on the top, you see this bond between the top O and this larger structure on the side. That bond is what can get ruptured apart. I put the water in red to make it easier to see what's happening. Water is an H and an OH, H2O. The H comes over here and the OH comes over here and in the process breaks apart that ring. Once dehydroascorbic acid undergoes hydrolytic ring rupture, you can never get it back to any of the other forms. That's irreversible loss. So if we're thinking back about foods, then what we want to do is prevent the formation of dehydroascorbate because if we do that, then we're never going to have the irreversible destruction of vitamin C in the solution. So there's really two ways to do this. One way would be to simply keep vitamin C as a dry powder. If there's no water, this H can never leave into solution, and you're never going to get any ascorbate ion. So if you think about vitamin C supplements, that's what they've done. You have a dry powder in a jar, you have a dry powder in a capsule, you have dry powder mixed with some other agents in a tablet, and that dryness preserves the vitamin C. What if you have a natural food? They have their own water. Well, to some degree, nature has taken care of that because if you think about the foods with the most water that also have vitamin C, they tend to have other acids that bring the pH down. Think of citrus fruits. You have a very juicy material. You know, you squeeze an orange out, there's plenty of water there. But there's also a pretty low pH because not only do you have vitamin C, but you have other acids. And those acids help stabilize the vitamin C in that solution. You also, to some degree, have ongoing metabolism. And that also could aid in vitamin C recycling. But if you take something like leaves, you may not have as much acid, but you don't need it because the vitamin C isn't as diluted in that food. The problem becomes when, let's say, you take leaves and then you juice them. Well, if you're going to drink them right away, then fine. But if you're going to put them in the refrigerator and save it for later, you could have a lot of loss of that vitamin C because now you have diluted the vitamin C, put it in a solution, and there's not enough acid to stabilize it. So if you're going to juice things and make smoothies and make dishes that you're saving for later, especially when they're dilute, you want to keep in mind that 
adding foods that provide acidity is going to help stabilize the vitamin C. Vitamin C's ability to donate hydrogen ions and electrons is not only underlying its role as an antioxidant, it's also underlying its role as a cofactor for a bunch of enzymes involved in synthesizing or modifying important molecules within our bodies. Shown on the screen is a simplified and generalized schematic for what vitamin C's role is in these reactions. Quite commonly, what vitamin C is doing is helping with a hydroxylation reaction. And you can imagine a substrate that just has a hydrogen. And vitamin C is going to help take an oxygen from the oxygen in the air that we breathe and break it in half and then insert it in right in front of that hydrogen and make an OH group. That is a hydroxyl group, so it's called a hydroxylation reaction. And then you have a hydroxylated substrate, which is some new important product. Now, vitamin C's role is actually in the safe disposal of the oxygen during this process. So if you imagine that oxygen is ripped in half, that single oxygen atom is not stable at all and could be potentially very dangerous. So ascorbic acid donates two hydrogen ions and electrons to one oxygen atom to make water. And so by having ascorbic acid here, you can safely rip apart oxygen molecules to insert them into other molecules without risking damage to the cell. And in that sense, vitamin C is basically acting as an antioxidant here as well, only in this case it's a specific interaction with this enzyme for the purpose of allowing some kind of synthesis or modification to an existing molecule to take place. There's actually a quite a list of different molecules that vitamin C is involved in modifying, and I'm not putting all of them here, but I've highlighted on the screen three of them because these are the most important for thinking about how is vitamin C distributed in body tissues, how is it distributed in foods, and what are we going to expect in deficiency signs. So one of them is oxytocin. Some people have called this the love hormone. It's increased in response to touch and even more in that could be petting your dog or hugging someone. It's increased more the longer you hug. It's released during sex. More if the sex is with someone you love. More if you orga orgasm. Um, some people debate whether it should be called the love hormone. I'm not going to get into that. It's made in the pituitary gland, and the implication of this is that we're going to see high concentrations of vitamin C in the pituitary gland. Norepinephrine is a hormone involved in the response to stress. It's made in the adrenal gland in the nervous system, and as a result, we're going to see high concentrations of vitamin C in the adrenal gland. Collagen is the main protein in connective tissue, and it's especially abundant in skin and bones. So we're going to expect skin to need some vitamin C and bone to need some vitamin C. But we wouldn't expect the concentration of vitamin C to be as high in those tissues because collagen is a very slowly turning over protein that has a structural role. Oxytocin and norepinephrine have hormonal and signaling roles, so they need to constantly turn over because 
You either need that signal at that time or you get rid of it. And every time you need that signal, you have to make a new oxytocin or a new norepinephrine. So we're going to need a lot higher concentrations in the adrenal glands and the pituitary gland to keep up with that constant need for synthesis. If you look on the screen, you can see the measurement of vitamin C concentrations in a variety of different human tissues. You can also generalize from this list that the tissues of other animals are going to be similar. So you can see over in the top left that the highest concentrations are in the pituitary gland and the adrenal gland, and that reflects the demand for vitamin C for the synthesis of those molecules. We also see vitamin C in a lot of other organ meats. We see a little bit in skeletal muscle. We see that there are some organs that have less demand. This is going to be a combination of questions like, does that tissue synthesize an important molecule that is vitamin C dependent? And is that molecule highly turning over, like in the pituitary and adrenal gland, or is it something much more slowly turning over? And also, what is the need for vitamin C as an antioxidant in those tissues as well? So if you have tissues that have a higher metabolic rate, you're going to have more vitamin C because the demand for antioxidant power is greater. So as we can see from this table, although we typically associate vitamin C with fruits and vegetables, which is warranted, it's also true that vitamin C is found in animal tissues. And in fact, we can look into the nutritional anthropology literature to see examples where people who lived in climates that limited their access to plant foods knew about the ability of adrenal glands, for example, to prevent scurvy. You can see a quote on the screen from Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston Price, who talked to Native Americans of northern Canada about their use of moose adrenal gland to prevent scurvy in the 1930s. Quote, when I asked an old Indian through an interpreter why the Indians did not get scurvy, he replied promptly that that was a white man's disease. I asked whether it was possible for the Indians to get scurvy. He replied that it was, but said that the Indians know how to prevent it, and the white man does not. When asked why he did not tell the white man how, his reply was that the white man knew too much to ask the Indian anything. I then asked him if he would tell me. He said he would tell me if the chief said he might. He went to see the chief and returned in about an hour saying that the chief said he could tell me because I was a friend of the Indians and had come to tell the Indians not to eat the food in the white man's store. He took me by the hand and led me to a log where we both sat down. He then described how when the Indian kills a moose, he opens it up, and at the back of the moose, just above the kidney, there are what he described as two small balls in the fat. These, he said, the Indian would take and cut up into as many pieces as there were little and big Indians in the family, and each one would eat his piece. They would eat also the walls of the second stomach. By eating these parts of the animal, the Indians would keep free from scurvy, which is due to the lack of vitamin C. So we could say overall that vitamin C is naturally most abundant in fresh fruits and vegetables and organ meats. And we want to protect it by keeping those foods fresh. And if we do process the foods in a way that adds water, then certainly we want to help keep it stable with extra acidity. Humans are actually one of the few species that require vitamin C. 
And you can see on the screen a representation of the small family to which we belong. Most non-human primates, guinea pigs, locusts, capybaras, Indian fruit bats, trout, salmon, bulbuls, and swallows also have a requirement for vitamin C. Almost all other animals do not have a requirement for vitamin C. And so that means if you think of common pets like dogs and cats, you think of common farm animals like cows and pigs, you think of common laboratory animals like rats and mice, none of them have a requirement for vitamin C. And what that means is that we have to be extra careful that if we decide to have a pet guinea pig instead of a pet hamster, then we best be cognizant of the fact that guinea pigs require a special diet. Don't feed your guinea pig diet, uh, don't feed your guinea pig your pet rabbit diet. They're not going to be able to get by on the same foods. If we think of research studies where we want to understand something that relates to oxidative stress or vitamin C metabolism and generalize from the animals to humans, we better rethink the use of rats and mice because rats and mice are fundamentally different from humans in that they don't require vitamin C. And in those cases, you might want to use guinea pigs as a model. Some people study guinea pigs because their lipoprotein metabolism is also more similar to ours. Well, in the same way, you would want to consider whether their vitamin C requirement is more similar to ours and might be a better model for certain types of research projects. Vitamin C was first discovered as the factor that causes immunity to scurvy, and it was named ascorbic acid because back in the day, scorbic or scorbutic meant pertaining to scurvy. The anti-scorbutic factor was eventually named ascorbic acid, where A means the absence of, and scorbic refers to scurvy, so ascorbic acid is the acid that causes an immunity to scurvy, or the absence of scurvy. Scurvy is largely resulting in clinical science because of a defect in the proper synthesis of collagen, and the most widespread and visible signs are all due to the defects in collagen synthesis, and you're going to see that manifesting in the skin, the mucous membranes, and the hair. And internal bleeding and bleeding underneath the skin are pervasive. So that's resulting in a defect in the collagen that provides the structure to the blood vessels. On the left on the screen, you can see bruise-like patterns developing. These aren't technically bruises and they don't require trauma to the skin to develop. So basically something that looks like a bruise but isn't logically explainable by any kind of physical trauma like bumping into something but just seems to develop on its own, that could be a potential cause of scurvy or a potential reflection of scurvy. Scurvy patients can develop minor spots that are similar bruise-like patterns, and they can develop corkscrew hairs where a defect uh, in collagen synthesis is causing the hair to develop into this twisty shape. To be honest with you, I would hate to be the person responsible for diagnosing this because honestly, it looks a lot to me like a curly hair. This is another patient who has scurvy, and you can see uh, again, these small 
bruise-like patterns developing in the skin. And you can also see that in the membrane, mucous membranes of the mouth, you have the same principle going on where you have bleeding just underneath it that's actually running into open bleeding of not only the gums, but also uh, the other tissues of the mouth. So spontaneous bleeding of the gums or anywhere in the mouth could be another sign of scurvy. Because of vitamin C's fundamental role in the antioxidant network, we're going to see that vitamin C and vitamin E are going to interact in ways where if one is missing, we may need more of the other. An example of that is in cigarette smokers. Cigarette smokers have a faster disappearance of vitamin E due to a greater rate of oxidation, and vitamin C can help bring that back down to normal by recycling vitamin E more effectively. If you see on the screen, this is a study where the disappearance of alpha and gamma tocopherol were looked at in non-smokers and smokers. And so these bars, the higher up they are, the faster vitamin E is disappearing from that person's body. And it's disappearing because it's oxidized, but it's not effectively recycled. And so it winds up going down further irreversible oxidation steps where you can't recycle it anymore and you've irreversibly lost it. And on the left panel is alpha-tocopherol. On the right panel is gamma-tocopherol. Within each of those panels, non-smokers are on the left and smokers are on the right. And within each of these populations, the white bar is the placebo and the dashed bar is the subjects who had gotten vitamin C 500 milligrams twice daily for two weeks to see how that would affect the vitamin E disappearance rate. So you can see, first of all, that vitamin C had no effect on the disappearance of vitamin E in non-smokers, whether it's alpha-tocopherol or gamma-tocopherol. And that's probably because non-smokers already have a low normal rate of vitamin E disappearance. If you compare non-smokers to smokers, whether it's for alpha-tocopherol or for gamma-tocopherol, you can see that smokers have an increased rate of vitamin E disappearance relative to non-smokers. Finally, if you look within smokers, you can see that ascorbic acid brings that faster disappearance down, almost back down to the level of non-smokers. So what that means is that most people at the vitamin E and vitamin C intakes that they have have a vitamin E disappearance rate that can't be fixed by vitamin C. Either it's as low as it can go, or there are other factors that would be needed to synergize with vitamin C to bring it down even lower than it is. But smokers have this additional disappearance of vitamin E that we can directly modify simply by adding more vitamin C to their diet to bring that vitamin E disappearance back down to normal. The study I just showed you was done after the RDA for vitamin C was set, but you can see that when it was set, there was already enough evidence to say that individuals who smoke require an additional 35 milligrams per day of vitamin C over that needed by non-smokers. All right, that's it for today. Next time, we're going to talk about glutathione. This has been vitamin C. 
Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com, and you've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn.